0: Welcome, everyone, to Episode 68, Gene Editing and Stem Cells. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Daylon James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Daylon? You're in a basement or something.
1: I'm in a basement. I'm I'm away from the lab currently on a part of my home renovation summer project.
0: That's right. We talked about in the last show.
1: It has commenced, and it is so terribly mundane and boring, but highlighted by moments of glory, which you would think you wouldn't care about. When you look in your own house, when you look at your sink, do you say, oh, man, I love that sink? I don't think so. I got this sink today, and it was so glorious. I just sat there, and I looked at it for like a good, a good 10, 15 minutes. It was so pathetic.
0: You're just so happy. It's the, it's the little things, like a sink. And you're going to look at that sink every day. Yes, right?
1: exactly. And it's in, in life, when so much goes wrong with any project, I think sometimes you're just, you know, happy when you get what you thought you were going to get. You know what I mean? That's the right. minor things in life.
0: It's the little things, and they add up, bringing a smile. That's right. So much
1: is out of our control, Kiki. So much is out of our control.
0: You control that sink. You do. (laughs)
1: That sink is mine. That
0: sink is yours. Oh, my goodness. Okay, you guys, let's get down to business. Let's talk about some science. Everyone who's listening, make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, like signing up for our newsletter If you sign up for the newsletter, we're going to email you when a new show is released, and that's going to contain all the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. It's going to make your life a lot easier, just like Dalen Sink. Signing up for the Stem Cell Forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells. It's called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, Daylin, we have a great show today. Our guest for episode 68 is Dr. Huang Huangfu. We've invited on the show to discuss her work using gene editing and stem cells and her latest paper in Cell Stem Cell. But right now, we're going to round it up. You ready for that?
1: I'm ready. I'm ready to begin the roundup. This is going to be such a great show. I love Donway. She's right across the street from me, and she's really making things happen in the stem cell field. But first, you're going to talk about some science, right?
0: Oh, I am. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to first talk about Imodium AD.
1: All right. Well, hang on. (laughs) Hang on. on. I know you're in a rush. I'm in a rush. Let's do it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> Makes me. I'm, I'm picturing you running somewhere with your hand on your behind.
0: No. But before that, before yeah. that. You have something to I tell something us. something to tell the whole world.
1: And it's about the Science Roundup and who it's sponsored by. That's Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, ToCris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All
0: right, Kiki, now it's to you. Get now, to now, now I get to go. Okay.
1: Got to go, got to go, got to go. Oh, right, now. <laughs> go right you know, that was the old
0: commercial <laughs> theme
1: song for Modium. Really um, got to go right now.
0: Oh my goodness, I did not remember that at all, but that's hilarious. A recent study in the medical journal The Annals of Emergency Medicine has described two fatal cases of patients with a history of substance abuse who came into the emergency room after having taken, quote, massive doses of Imodium AD to self-medicate their withdrawal symptoms.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: I did not even know this was an issue, but... Opioid abuse is skyrocketing. There are a lot of people taking prescription opioids, also illicit substances as well, like heroin, et cetera. But it means a lot more people are going through withdrawal symptoms when they try to get off of these substances. And people are doing basically whatever they can to get either high or to make themselves feel better when they're going through withdrawal. And that includes taking lots of Imodium AD. I, so this is an anti-diarrheal medicine, and loperamide is the the name of the anti-diarrheal compound that's in Imodium. But it can lead to serious heart problems and death.
1: Oh, so you're saying this is a serious problem? This
0: is a serious problem. This is not a, something to be taken lightly. So uh, I shouldn't
1: laugh. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, laughing. Yeah
0: the the complications that the these two fatal cases that were written about in the journal came not from the loperamide, but from other ingredients in it. And so they affect the body and can actually lead to really serious problems. And the authors conclude that this is a big reminder that all drugs, including those that are sold over-the-counter without a prescription, can be dangerous when they're not used as directed. You don't just take things. You've got to know how to take them. Read the directions.
1: That's what uh, Nancy Reagan was talking about when she said with the whole just say no.
0: <laughs> just say no. Is that
1: that emodium?
0: To the emodium. That's right. Moving on, we've talked about this before, but the World Health Organization has advised people living in regions where Zika has spread to consider delaying pregnancy because of the birth defects that are tied to the disease. And I guess it received attention this last Thursday after the World Health Organization updated the guidance that it has issued to clarify the difference between people who live in Zika-affected countries and the people who visit them. And so they really say That those people, men and women of reproductive age living in areas where there's local transmission of the disease, should be correctly informed and oriented to consider delaying pregnancy. And then the WHO recommends that men and women who've traveled to these areas should consider abstinence for at least eight weeks following their return home. Now, this makes me wonder consider delaying pregnancy, does this mean that the World Health Organization plans on stopping Zika from spreading? Or are we just going to say, hey, now it's endemic and it's just a thing? I mean, what yeah, is I it?
1: Just, delay pregnancy
0: up. forever? What?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just confused. I'm not even confused, but I just, my advice to anybody would be just don't get pregnant. It doesn't matter where you are. Just delay pregnancy for a couple of years. The world shouldn't have babies for a couple of years. Oh, geez. It's going to be tough.
0: We've got a population issue anyway. So, hey, maybe, yeah. It's a bonus. It's <laughs> a bonus. Another interesting study that was published June 9th in Cell, researchers have modified the nerves in the peripheral limbs, the peripheral nerves that are involved in the sense of touch in mice. And the reason they did this was to study autism. And Now, most people consider autism based in the brain, but this study suggests that autism might also stem from the skin, or at least the perception of touch as the nerves work in the skin. They added mutations to a handful of autism-related genes that are only in the peripheral nerves. So they kept these mutations from being in the brain. The brains of the mice were basically normal, and it was only the peripheral nerves that were affected that dealt with the sense of touch. The mice that had the mutations had trouble telling a smooth object from a rough one, They had reactions to harmless puffs of air, not being able to tell whether they were harmless or not. And this deficit was caused by the touch-sensing nerves seeming to have problems actually sending the messages to the spinal cord. So the interesting thing of this is that it's development-related. So when the mutations were turned turned on or added in to adult mice, it did not affect the adult mouse behavior. It only affected young mice. So they seem to think that there's some kind of sensitive period, a window in which the nerve activity is very important to how the animals behave. Of course, we don't know if this is going to work the same way in humans because this is a mouse model, but they're really interested in looking at trying to figure out when the sensitive window, the sensitive period might be, and also exploring ways to restore normal touch sensation that could involve using drugs or other genetic manipulations that could be added in before the window closes. So, the idea being that therapeutically, if this stands up in humans, that young children with autism that we could potentially help them and help them sense with their skin better and maybe help them develop as they uh, get older.
1: Yeah, this is fascinating. I, I always assumed, I think, and I'm not the only one, that it was like a, in terms of cause and effect, the behavioral or sensory integration issues surrounding mm-hmm. autism were more of a you know, a, a symptom, whereas it seems like maybe sensory integration may be part of the cause. It's a really fascinating turn
0: very fascinating and that's really interesting also to you know consider and realize that the brain does not act all on its own you know we think of it as being all alone encased in the skull but it reaches out and really our body is how the brain interacts with the world right and so if there are any problems in the periphery they could definitely feedback yeah new elements there are some very heavy elements out there hmm. <laughs> that were well it's, it's been decades now but elements 113, 115, 117, and 118 officially discovered, have been officially added to and recognized and added to the periodic table of elements, and now they are getting new names, new proposed names. These are not actually finalized, but they're pretty much getting there. The IUPAC, International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, has given these names based on the discoverer's Who found them? So scientists at Riken in Waco, Japan named Element 113, which they discovered, and a Russian-U.S. collaboration named the others. So Element 113 is dubbed Nihonium, after the Japanese word Nihon, or Land of the Rising Sun, a name for Japan. And it's going to have the chemical symbol N-H. Element 115 is going to be called Moscovium, shortened to M-C, named after the Moscow region which is home to the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research in Dubna, where it was discovered in collaboration with Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and Oak Ridge National Laboratory scientists. U.S. got a little call out in there too. Tennessee is going to be on the periodic table for 117, and it's going to be called Tennesine, and that's after the home state of Oak Ridge National Laboratory. The symbol will be TS. And then my favorite, element 118, is going to be called Oganesson, or OG, after Russian physicist Yuri Oganessian, who has contributed to the discovery of many super-heavy elements.
1: That is definitely the coolest one. I'm with you. Yeah,
0: OG, that's right. (laughs) Also the
1: heaviest. I mean, you can't argue with the heaviest. And this is a big deal, because they're not making any more of these elements, are they?
0: Well, they're not making anymore, but, you know, we're trying to find them. And these super heavy elements are kind of hard to catch because they decay very, very quickly. And so to actually be able to confirm their presence in any system is very difficult. And so it's pretty cool when we actually get these predicted elements actually confirmed and stamped into the periodic table. It's like we know they're there. They're hiding from us and we're going to find them.
1: We're going to find that O.G. O.G. Sounds like a a gangster movie. I know. (laughs) I'm picturing Yuri Oganessian, and I'm I'm thinking O.G., and I don't know. When I think O.G., I think of Ice-T, you know? He's my icon of the O.G. Yuri, (laughs) Yuri could be something like that.
0: It could be. That does it for me for the roundup. What do you have?
1: I got some stem cell-related science for you, Kiki. The first one, it's important. I'll put it that way. It's a bit dry, but I think it's a really important step for the field. This is like a, uh, a reference library, you could think of it. This is a group that took a bunch of different stem cell lines, human embryonic stem cell lines and induced pluripotent stem cell lines. And, you know, the real issue here is you need to rigorously characterize these things so that you know what differences may arise during their culture or their derivation. Because they come from a lot of different sources, especially the iPS cells. You know, they come from different types of tissue. Uh, and one of the important milestones here is, a, is like a standard or a reference. So that you can take any stem cell line from a patient, ultimately, that you want to clinically apply and say, hey, is this a good line? Well, let's look at some known good lines. All right, so to achieve this landmark, the uh, Progenitor Cell Biology Consortium performed comprehensive experimental and genomic analyses of 58 IPS cell lines from 10 different laboratories, which were generated using a variety of different methods. And what they found, essentially, I'm going to bottom line it, is that there were differences. And this is not unknown. Depending on the cell of origin, there have been epigenetic differences that were noted Depending on whether it's from a male or female, there's differences in whether or not there's the kind of imprinting, the X chromosome inactivation. These are all the within expectations. I thought what was really notable and some of the minor details of this study is that some things that were predictive of a truly pluripotent stem cell line, let's say you had a line that was supposed to be pluripotent, that was a line that should form teratomas, which is the gold standard of pluripotency. And another line that wasn't predicted to be pluripotent shouldn't. What they found in one case was that some of the cell lines that weren't predicted to be pluripotent were able to form teratomas, perhaps calling into question this idea of whether this pluripotent quote-unquote profile really equals, you know, true gold standard pluripotency, or may indicate that the measure of pluripotency in vitro is not really indicative of pluripotency, at least as measured by the gold standard of teratoma formation. Bottom line, we needed a reference. We needed a bunch of lines. We needed ones that were good, consensus good by all measures, so we could use them as standards, and that's the standard to which all future lines are going to be compared to. At least that's according to this new study, which has really been, I think, an important landmark to get something in the field so that we have a a ruler by which to measure all the other lines that come in the future.
0: It's so fascinating that, you know, the whole concept of what is going to be pluripotent, it just goes to show that we don't really know it all yet.
1: We don't. And at the end of the day, it's like most things. The thing that's going to be pluripotent is the thing that is.
0: Exactly.
1: (laughs) We don't really know how to predict.
0: But if we can figure out how to predict, then that will help, you know, and like when... For cancers, when we think we've got the tumor, when we think we've got it all out, and we think we've got all the cells, but then a tumor comes back, why did it come back? What cell was left behind? What did we miss? And now we might be able to to understand that a little bit better.:
1: Filling in those gaps, really, that's the key to progress here in most fields.
0: Yep. All right, so this is, uh, you know,
1: I think it alludes to our, our guest later who, who may talk a little bit about the nature of, of type 1 diabetes which is an autoimmune disease. This is another autoimmune disease that most people are familiar with. It's multiple sclerosis. So multiple sclerosis is this chronic inflammatory condition, affects the central nervous system, and it's caused, most people I think would agree, experts in the field, I think there's consensus that it's a immune function. It's when the immune system attacks the body, one of these autoimmune disorders. So one approach that's been thought that might, might work with this is to try and ablate that autoimmunity. So one way that's done in a classic sense is chemotherapy for treating cancer. You want to wipe out all the cancerous blood cells, but you know, the blood cells are the immune cells in large part. So the approach taken here was to use chemo combined with a stem cell transplant from a donor to pretty much replace the immune system of patients suffering from uh, multiple sclerosis. So this was done in as a trial in, in 24 patients in three different Canadian hospitals. And I thought what was really remarkable. So these were patients between 18 and 50 years old. And they had a wide range ranging disabilities that all stemmed from MS.
0: Yeah, but a particular kind of MS as well.
1: Yes, yes. That that should be noted. Thank you, Kiki, for throwing it in there, which is governed by autoimmunity. And I thought though was notable is that at 23 of the 24 patients, the other patient died from the chemo. So pretty much all the patients that survived the treatment halted development of n- new brain lesions and they didn't need to, to continue their medication. Eight of those patients also had sustained improvement in their disabilities as, as long as t- seven and a half years later. That's amazing. So I think you know, while there's a bit of because there's some caveats here, you know, this wasn't a prospective randomized trial. All the patients got the treatment. How would you randomize this? I mean, you're not going to, you know, give chemo and, and stem cell transplant to patients who had a, a sham. So it's tough, but still, I think it's pretty compelling that all the patients showed a, a noticeable and I think pretty compelling result. And uh, to talk about this, we're scheduling, hopefully we'll get them on the show, Dr. Mark Friedman, who's the lead author on the study. And, It should be, I think, a really nice complement to today's interview with Don Way, who, you know, not specifically talking about autoimmunity, but it's a a similar disease. It's a disease um, that manifests from autoimmune function. Maybe we can get Don Way to weigh in on that a bit later.
0: Yeah, and uh, get with Dr. Friedman to talk about specifically, you know, how the stem cells work in this case and how do they go about resetting the immune system so that, I mean, seven and a half years later, I mean, that either halted or improved symptoms. This is unheard of, especially for, and this is a primary progressive form of MS, which only affects a very, very small percentage of patients. So the majority of people have relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis, where it's like they get a little worse and they get a little better and just kind of goes like that for a while. But this primary progressive is just, it's all downhill Mm -hmm. until people die from complications from MS. So, I mean, you're bedridden, you're having lesions in the brain, this is to go, I don't know, chemotherapy and stem cell transplant, and then you're fixed? Yeah. What?
1: (laughs) It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, as effective as the therapy was on this patient population, it's very, very compelling. Yeah. And, I mean, you can imagine also extending it that it wouldn't take such an insult you know, maybe if you can figure out, use this platform as a means of kind of defining what the nature of that autoimmunity is, it would be a major step forward of trying fitting this into a more traditional, you know, pharmacological paradigm, trying to derail the process, as opposed to try and replace the entire immune system. So it's a really big deal. I hope we can get Mark Friedman here to talk about it with us, give us some of the details.
0: Yeah, I think he's going to be on episode 70. So that is something we'll look forward to.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to hear his future directions there. That's going to be something. So next, we got new techniques to assess the fate of stem cells in vivo. This is a study that was recently published in Genes in Development. I think a a guy who's really done amazing work in terms of lineage tracing across all different genres, focused mostly on cancer. He began in the hair follicle field in Elaine Fuchs' lab, but What he's done essentially is found out these really elegant ways to figure out which cells come from what cells in vivo. I mean, it's easy when you're looking at them in a dish, but in the body with all the trillions of cells, it's really hard to define what came from where and how long ago and how many cell proliferations have there been in the meantime. This is really, really important, not just in development, but what Dr. Blampin focuses on is, is cancer mostly, because, you know, there's this idea the cancer stem cell. Where says, as Kiki was alluding to earlier, we get the cancer, we got rid of it, chemo, yay, remission. And then, no, there was this little stowaway stem cell that got reactivated and, and led to the tumor, you know, recurring. So it's really important to try and zero in on these cells and also to understand where different cells and organs come from in normal development. And that's what uh, Cedric did in this group. Effectively, what the study was, was that Alan Woodard, who was the lead author in the study, they developed two methods to determine whether stem cells in the mammary gland and the prostate are multipotent or unipotent during development and adulthood. Okay, so multipotent forming multiple different cell populations are unipotent. They could only form one. And what they found well, using this, you know, lineage tracing, multicolor, multispectral lineage tracing experience, they had a whole rainbow going on in these mice. And they combine it with another esoteric method called lineage tracing and saturation to assess the fate of all these unique cells that they marked and their progeny to see if they were unipotent or multipotent. And what they showed is that the the prostate, while the prostate... Develops from multipotent stem cells. The prostate, in, in development, forms from multipotent stem cells that form multiple different cells. Unipotent cells are the ones that mediate mammary gland development, also adult tissue remodeling. So they pretty much put aside these two cell, these two organs, saying the prostate changed from multipotent, the mammary glands made from unipotent. And figuring out these relationships across all organs is really going to be an important step for cancer because. Usually, it's the, the progenitor cells within the, the organ that give rise to the cancer. And we don't really understand organ to organ how they're made, whether it's this unipotent or multipotent process. So it's a pretty cool study and a, an important, I think, addition to the many, many studies that Cedric Lampen and his group have made to understanding lineage tracing and cellular origins in cancer and normal development.
0: Yeah, it'll probably go a long way toward informing therapy development and how just so many different directions of this understanding are this is yes. Im- this is important stuff.
1: Exactly. Cause you know Good job, Cedric. Cedric, you're doing it. If you find the cell, we can look at the cell and see what that cell, what makes it unique, what receptors it has, and then we can target it. So he's really taken lead on on that line of research and treatment all right, for my last study, I got to just, you know, set this up. Did you see about this crazy lady who's the CEO of a company and she treated herself with her own drug? It was this drug to make her telomeres longer. And she came out oh, no. and was like, yeah, I did it. She's like thinking she would, you know, there's that doc who's famous, won the Nobel Prize for giving himself pylori, gave himself an ulcer to prove it.
0: Right. Yeah. So
1: this girl thinks that she's my man she jumps in. Oh, I'm going to take it. And then she goes on the press. It's like, it worked. I'm my I'm effectively 20 years younger, my organs. I'm young. And they looked at the details and it was all margin of error is all a bunch of malarkey. (laughs) But still, I mean, it took it took a lot of gusto, I think, to just go blind and take your own treatment. Clearly, a little bit of a publicity stunt. But it's a setup for this story, because the, the idea here was that she took this Lenty this is crazy what she did. She took a viral agent that was wow. making overexpressing tert which is like an oncogene yeah. to make her telomeres longer. She wanted to make her telomeres but longer.
0: But she could have potentially given herself cancer.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think that, that, that we'll <laughs> wait and see on that one. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to be her 20 years younger but in in those, you know, in 20 years she's going to have all kinds of things going on I'm afraid. Anyway, so that's the idea and the idea I think maybe isn't so bad. And let me elaborate on that. Please do. So, although telomere length is genetically determined, you know, it's set, they shorten as you get older. With each cell division, your telomeres get shorter and shorter, and it's thought to be a major target or uh, why you age because of telomere shortening and it's the cells don't, you know, go through mitosis and proliferate in the right way with short telomeres. So right. the idea in the past has been, we can lengthen them and we'll be old, we'll be young. We'll rejuvenate ourselves. But it's tough to do that without these methods like Crazy Lady did. I, I don't want to call her Crazy Lady. <laughs> She's <laughs> not insane. She's, she She's a
0: biohacker. One. She's just DIY biohacking. She is on the cusp, the cutting edge courageous. of science. There we go. We'll
1: give her another, not crazy, courageous.
0: Courageous. There we go.
1: So... He's not the only one with this idea, but this group took a maybe a more, I'd say, careful approach. They wanted to look fundamentally if this worked. They took mouse embryonic stem cells and they engineered them so they had twice as long telomeres. They had Telomeres are twice as long as normal spies. And then they used those ES cells to make mice. So they had mice in which some of the cells had, they were chimeras, where some of them had the long telomere cells and some of them had normal. And what was really notable, I think, was that while both the hyperlong and the normal, they shortened as the mice got older, the GFP positive cells, and that's how they were identified, the long telomere ones, they remained longer, as you would expect, because they started longer. But what was really notable is that they accumulated fewer cells with DNA damage as they age, they expressed lower levels of P53, which is thought to be involved in kind of oncogenic response or the tumor surveillance. I don't know what the interpretation of that one was. And in highly self-renewing compartments like the blood, the hyperlong telomere cells were enriched and maintained with age. So maybe they outcompeted. competed the implication there that the author is making, it, that the the cells with the long telomeres outcompeted the cells with the smaller or shorter telomeres, although mm-hmm. I don't think they reached any level of certainty on that or in terms of the data. But I think it's a good study because it showed that cells with the longer telomeres that aren't generated by these artificial manipulations that increase TERT, which is known to be a part of the cells becoming cancerous, they start to overexpress this TERT. So you wonder if you want to be doing that in your normal cells. It shows that. Long telomeres can have some potential benefits in terms of uh, the longevity of the cells. So not that we're going to start making, you know, babies that start out with twice as long telomeres, but I think it shows that maybe fundamentally telomere length does have something to do with the, the longevity of cells in vivo and their ability to proliferate and not accumulate DNA damage. So there may
0: be something there. Yeah, maybe eventually we will be overexpressing turt for ourselves, you know. Well, you, you and Miss pop, Courageous. Popping the pill, taking the skin creams, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I don't know if I'm that courageous yet. <laughs> I'm just going to keep... I'm, I'm going to let you get started. I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to let nature take its course for the most part.
1: <laughs> uh, piki. nature is, is being very kind to you. Uh,
0: rage, rage against the dying of the cell, right? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, that's all I got for you.
0: All right. Awesome roundup. Once again, remember that all of the links to these papers are going to be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. So let's get into the interview segment of the show. This portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies has a new product, Reset Medium. Reset reverts primed human pluripotent stem cells and maintains cells in a naive-like state. Reset your HPSCs with reset. It's spelled teaser, T-E-S-R. That's teaser spelled backwards because reverting back to naive-like pluripotency is what you want to do. Formulations are based on the 2013 Nature publication from the Jacob Hanna Lab at Weitzman Institute of Science. But this is an improved version that does not contain BFGF or TFG beta. Stem Cell podcast listeners can get a free sample at www.stemcell.com getreset get reset spelled R-S-E-T. Okay, so our guest today is Dr. Donwei Huangfu, assistant professor at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. The goal of her lab is to understand the fundamental principles that govern the identity of a cell and to use these principles to manipulate cell fates for regenerative medicine. In pursuit of this goal, they employ a variety of approaches, including cellular programming and reprogramming through gene transduction, directed differentiation of embryonic stem cells, chemical screening, mouse genetics, adult tissue injury and regeneration, and tissue cell transplantation. That's a lot of stuff. But today, we're going to be talking with Don Wei about gene editing and how her lab uses this technology with stem cells. Dr. Wang Fu, welcome to the Stem
2: Cell Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You are so welcome. We're very excited to have you on the show, especially to talk about your most recent paper in cell stem cell. But before we jump into the specifics of that experiment, why don't we give the audience a little bit of context about the focus of your lab's work?
2: Okay. Uh, Maybe I can go back a little bit to when I was a student, I was interested in how human embryos develop. And in those days, we use mouse genetics to understand how human embryos develop. And when I was a postdoc, I was trained uh, in Doug Melton's lab at Harvard, uh, and there I started to get exposed to stem cell technology. So now that um, I have my own lab, I decided that I want to sort of combine the stem cell technology with my initial intention to understand human development uh, to really apply genetics to human embryonic stem cells in order to understand differentiation decisions.
0: Right, so figuring out why and when cells, cells make changes and become more specialized for certain purposes, right?
2: Exactly, yeah. And, and that might also tell us about uh, what could happen when things go wrong, for example, in the case of congenital disorders or uh, even adult-onset uh, diseases such as type 2 diabetes.
1: So that's uh, your specific focus, right, in terms of a disease interest diabetes uh, can you talk about how do we use stem cells to really not just treat diabetes i know is a conventional idea that we'll have this cell replacement but i think you have a, a different angle which is maybe collectively as a field we're starting to appreciate how valuable stem cells are as a model of how things go right in development normally and how they go wrong can you uh, elaborate on that how it relates to your own work
2: Sure. So um, disease modeling using human prepotent stem cells, uh, per se, is maybe not terribly new. It started a number of years ago with the Yamanaka finding with reprogramming and making iPS cells. What's really relatively new is the ability to do genome editing to precisely model the disease conditions. And the reason being that if you get iPS cells from two patients and compare them to someone that's healthy, a healthy control, There are many differences between these people, so you can't possibly be sure that the differences that you see with the cells are really due to a specific genetic difference between these people, whereas genome editing allows you to go in very specifically to introduce a disease-associated mutation in a healthy control or correct mutation that's present in iPS cells from a patient. Uh, therefore, you can actually compare exactly what that mutation does to the cells in the context of either development or metabolic diseases and others.
1: But hang on. I <laughs> thought that's what we have mice for. What, what about all these mice that we have in the colony, millions of them crawling around modeling disease for us? What's, what's the shortcoming of using the mouse models, specifically with respect to your, your disease focus?
2: I would say mouths are still incredibly useful. However, we all know that mouths are not human, and it's actually really true that there are many diseases that are not very well modeled in in mice. For example, there is a gene called neurogenin three. It's one of the genes that we study in the paper that we just published. So, in human patients, we know that lacking neurogenin three causes a severe disease. However, most patients are born reasonably okay with the pancreas with beta cells, uh, whereas in mice, now couch NGN3 basically causes the mouse to lack beta cells, the insulin-producing cells um, that are required to regulate our blood glucose levels. So there is a discrepancy here between the mouse and the human models, and the key is to figure out why. And to figure out why, I would say the human ESLs would provide a pretty good way to bridge the gap between the differences in humans and in mouse models because, obviously, we cannot experiment on humans.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not so easily, yeah. Well, you speak, speak for <laughs> yourself, <that way>. Samuel. <laughs> so this kind of gives us a direct uh, line into getting into talking about your paper that was recently published. So genome editing of lineage determinants in human pluripotent stem cells reveals mechanisms of pancreatic development and diabetes. Can you give us a little bit more background on how you specifically went into this study?
2: So the study actually uh, sort of had the foundation of another paper we published two years ago in Cell Stem Cell on a genome editing tool. That tool really allowed us to edit the genes, any genes in the genome relatively easily. So about uh, that time after we established the platform, I was sort of jokingly talking to a postdoc in my lab. I was like, you know, now that you guys can edit any gene uh, so easily, why don't you just knock out... 10 genes and see what happens. I was just joking, (laughs) you know, but the postdoc took it very seriously, and he actually decided to take a very systematic approach by knocking out a bunch of transcription factors that are known to be important in pancreatic development, but not exactly known for their roles in human development, to see what exactly happens if we were to knock out these genes in human ESLs and what happens to the differentiation of the cells? When do things go wrong, essentially, in order to know what might actually happen when a human patient lacks those genes? So I thought it's actually quite incredible he was able to complete that. Many people actually told me that we are crazy <laughs> to knock out so many genes, but the results are quite uh, satisfying and I, we think it's very informative.
1: Well, I think you should. you're being very modest. I mean, part of what made this possible, I think, was in that previous paper, you set up a system that was so uh, amenable to being, you know, modular, in a sense, that you could knock out or or set your heights really, really um, high and knock out a lot of different genes. Do you think that this is representative of of a kind of new era that we're going to move, not just, you know, that we can knock out all these genes in humans, but the fact that we can knock out multiple genes Do you think we're coming into an era where we're doing like multi-gene knockouts in mice to look at things that are more complicated? You know, they talk about uh, disease in human is really more about a constellation of genes. We're moving beyond this idea of one gene, one disease, cystic fibrosis or what have you. So what can we do to try and, you know, understand maybe even metabolic disease in your field? Are we moving toward that where we can try to understand like what's behind the, like obesity epidemic or whatever it may be. I know that's a big idea, but can you talk about what we're doing about like multi-gene knockout? What's the next step?
2: I actually totally agree with your assessment. I think there are two aspects to it. Uh, One is, as you know, many of the human mutations or variants that's associated with complex diseases, uh, those are actually, each one of them are very small changes. They cause very, very subtle phenotypes. But in combination with uh, changes in many loci, now you have a patient that has a very severe disease. So it's incredibly important to understand the interaction between different genetic loci in terms of its function in disease. In fact, we have a study that uh, hasn't been published yet. We're trying to get it published on just that. So the study initiated when we saw a paper from Nature Genetics, on a gene that when one copy of that gene is deleted, apparently causes the patients to lose a pancreas. So those are uh, really bad cases. Patients were born without a pancreas, so they have they suffer from neonatal diabetes, a terrible disease. But later it was found that many other patients with similar mutations, those patients actually have milder phenotypes. So they, some of them have adult-onset diabetes, In fact, some of them are entirely normal. So so this is telling us that something is else, aside from this particular gene, is affecting the penetrance or severity of the disease phenotype. So in order to study that, we actually did genetic interaction studies by studying the interaction of this particular mutation with other genes in the same family and find that, indeed they do interact. By deleting other genes, you would actually make the disease much more severe. It doesn't necessarily mean that those other genes are mutated in the more severe cases in humans, but it does point to the right direction in that other genes can potentially be checked, and the human ESL system can be a way to quickly actually identify potential disease-modifying genes. And I think that's incredibly important because, in fact, the severe sort of monogenic diseases only affect a relatively small population of people, whereas complex diseases, they really affect a lot of people, maybe including us, right? Everyone is a mutant. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love it when science is, uh, is supportive of my science fiction dreams, right? <laughs> <laughs> So how much of this, you're talking a lot about using the human ES cell model and, you know, so a lot of stuff in the dishes, but how much are you going to be using predictive genomics, like where you use big data sets to be able to compare genes against each other to be able to maybe pinpoint the ones that you should really be looking at?
2: So I guess so far in terms of big data sets, um, we are... Well, I guess depending on how you define it, one thing that we are currently doing in the lab is to do CRISPR knockout screens. So to us, that's big data sets. Yeah. So essentially, uh, instead of knocking out genes one by one, we are knocking out, um, you know, every single gene in the genome and to see what are the genes that are responsible for the phenotypes that we are interested in. And I think in this regard, ESL system is actually a wonderful system in that it. We have a lot of cells that allows us to knock out every single gene in the genome, right? In the pool. And that allows us to screen through all those genes in a relatively efficient way. In fact, we know that if we set up the conditions right, a screen can be done in a week or two. So... Theoretically, anyone interested in any specific phenotype with a good assay can do such a screen uh, to identify the many, many unknown disease-causing or associated genes. Uh, I think that's wonderful.
0: How much faster is CRISPR making your workflow now?
2: So when I started my lab, uh, that's before CRISPR or before even Talens, right? So at that time, to to edit any gene in human and make a uh, homozygous knockout, I would say that's a little crazy. Most people would think that's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not just really hard, almost impossible. And now it's really becoming routine, especially with the system that we have. I have rotation students coming to my lab and making a couple of knockouts. It's just, you know, there's no barrier in terms of doing a specific kind of experiment that you have in mind. You don't have to think about, okay, technically, can I actually do that? Because we know it's achievable.
1: You know... I wonder, I don't want to be the cynic or the detractor here.
0: <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you
1: of do. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a bit of a jerk. But so I guess the question is, have we like skipped over the whole cell therapy part of embryonic and pluripotent stem cell research? Is it like, you know, the Jetsons, where we expected the future, everyone was thinking jet packs, but really no one had any idea about like cell phones uh, we're so focused on the, not so focused, but the new amazing thing, I think, that you're really exploiting to great ends is this, this ability to model disease. Are we still focused on, I think, cell therapy, I guess? Or do you think that maybe we've moved on collectively to try and find a different modus of treating disease? Or, or are you still focused mm-hmm. on cells as an as a ultimate means of regenerative therapy?
2: I think there's what the field wants to do and what my lab is focused on. And in terms of the field, I think therapy is very much still the focus. And, of course, to develop a good therapy, you need to have a very good understanding about how the cells form, how disease happens. So these two are pretty much connected in a way. And in my own lab, uh, we are very much interested in making functional beta cells. In fact, the other day, I got really excited that... I think, you know, sometimes when you do experiment on a daily basis, you sort of uh, you know not see the big picture all the time. But in fact, if I think back when I was trained as a postdoc, to be able to make functional pancreatic beta cells that can secrete insulin to regulate our blood glucose levels, it was, you know, it was proposed, but it was sort of like we don't know. Can we even achieve that? It'll be far away. We, we just, you know, cannot really see that happening immediately. And now, of course, some time has passed, and many labs has contributed to the field. And now look at what we have. We have a protocol that's co-developed by um, two labs, and that allows the field to really reasonably reliably make beta cells that are functional, that are relatively close. To the real beta cells in our body. I think it's amazing. There are so many things you could do about them.
1: So, what's left to, uh, before we can get that into people? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, just honestly, what else do we really need to take care of before we can get those cells into people in a way that makes sense?
2: Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, to me, I think there are several things. One is obviously there are still room for improvement, even though the beta cells do show functionality. So I think I'd like to use the analogy of, you know, someone who can swim and, and the swimmer sort of Olympics, right? So, so if someone can swim like Michael Phelps, you know, that'll be an analogy of a really good beta cell uh, that we want to use for transplantation. Uh, but right now, we'll probably make a swimmer that's maybe like me. So, that's not good <laughs> enough. so there's improvement that needs to be done in terms of the directed differentiation. But in addition, if you think about it, the next step, obviously, would be transplantation, right? So in some ways, it's also an engineering problem, meaning what kind of devices do you pack the beta cells in? Where do you put the transplant to? How do you prevent the beta cells from being attacked by the host immune system? And in fact, for type 1 diabetes, it's an autoimmune disease to begin with. So the immune system is sort of hyperactive already. So how do you prevent the new beta cells from being attacked again? And I think in these areas, uh, we could actually make some contributions in terms of For example, my lab's expertise is more in genome editing and directed differentiation So theoretically, you can imagine we might devise a way to edit the cells in a way that it may not be recognized by the host immune system. And if that's the case, wouldn't that be wonderful? We could just put the cells, in fact, the same cells, right, into any person, and the transplantation would just work. So that's, you know, I I think right now it's like a dream, but I, I think who is to say that in a few years, it's not going to become true.
1: I heard that, let's say, theoretically. Don't wait, tell the truth. That's your next big paper, isn't it? I see right through (laughs) you. Theoretically, hmm.
0: Are you actively working in this direction? Are we going to be seeing a paper from you in the next few years?
2: I think it's definitely too early to tell, but this direction that we're interested in for sure, and not just us. I think there are other people who have... Maybe similar ideas, right? Ideas maybe using different approaches. But I think it's generally recognized that transplantation is a potential barrier. And I think genome editing can be one way to maybe modify the cells to evade the immune attack.
0: Yeah. Once you can figure out what signal the immune system is honing in on to decide to attack a pancreatic beta cell, then maybe you can take that out.
2: Exactly. To me, this is actually, there's an interesting sort of way to think about it in that, uh, you know, tumor immunotherapy is really popular nowadays, and in many ways, we are trying to to boost the immune system to try to attack the uh, the tumor cells, right? Because in these cases, the tumor cells are bad. Right. But in our case, maybe we want to manipulate the immune system in the opposite direction so that they will not attack the good cells that we are putting in. So I think there are a lot that we could learn from the immunologists, actually.
0: I see collaborations in your future. <laughs> uh, it's
2: no
1: coincidence. You're right. Uh, MSK, MSK, they got a lot of that going on, right? So you're in a good place for that.
2: Yeah, I'm talking to my colleagues. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I just
0: want to say thank you so much for joining us to talk today. We don't want to keep you too much longer. We've already been been taking your time up at, during grant writing season. So <laughs> <laughs> so I know there's probably a lot more work for you out there. But thank you so much for spending some time with us and explaining your work. I just, it's just
2: fascinating. Oh, no problem. It's fun. Thank you.
1: Thanks a million, Dunway. Talk yeah. to you soon.
2: Okay, bye-bye, both
1: of you. Bye. All right, Kiki, that was Don Wei. What a great interview with her. I really enjoy talking to her. I meet her sometimes around the neighborhood. She's very mild-mannered, but she's like a wonder king in the lab. She's hysterical. And, uh, you know, I-, I would like to be a friend of hers.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe dreams do come true. I mean, you sure <laughs> are right across the street. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that,
1: that could work for me or against me, to be it, honest.
0: Yeah, but it was a really good interview. And I feel like she's doing some amazing work. I mean, systematically being able to just hone in on specific genes, figure out which genes are responsible for certain aspects of the cell development. It's going to really take diabetes therapy somewhere. And I really love the way that she explained her work and how she is focusing on it. I mean, she's just enthusiastic. It really seems like she likes what she's doing.
1: Yeah. It's no wonder. It's no wonder she's killing it out there.
0: Yeah. Everybody wants Donway's cells.
1: (laughs) Yes yes they do
0: at this point should we close the show good old scp rant
1: yeah i think it's time i think i'm not angry i'm so soothed by that interview but i could get stirred a little bit
0: i think you've got it in you what are we ranting about today
1: today we're ranting about pedestrians i mean i should say i'm a pedestrian most of the time living in new york city But I can understand that I'm a terrible, terrible pedestrian at times. And I hate myself even while I'm doing the things I'm doing. But, I mean, I've never really seen it from the side. I have, but I'm much more sympathetic to the pedestrian. But I still have to say they're annoying because they just sometimes, you know, when you're driving the car, they'll just start walking. And, like, they know that you're not going to hit them. But I don't know if they even see me in the city because you just see right through cars. So I get so anxious and sometimes I just kind of want to hit them just to teach them a lesson.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That would not be a good idea.
1: (laughs) So I don't know.
0: Here in Oregon, it's all pedestrians have the right of way. And every intersection is a crosswalk, even if the crosswalks are not painted on the street. So people, it's like Frogger here in Portland. Like people are just in the middle of the street all the time. It's busy road. They are just walk out in front of everybody. Ladies with baby carriages pushing the babies into the middle of the street as a car is bearing down on them. I don't understand. I mean, I get it. You want to cross the street. I'm a pedestrian too very often. But I, I understand that cars weigh about a ton and I don't. The laws of physics are against me. It should be in my best interest to keep my eyes open and not walk in front of cars. I don't understand the pedestrian death wish. I don't get it.
1: Uh, I don't know, though, about what about in Portland? I'm just not picturing it. In the city, I'm picturing Maybe in L.A., although there's no, like, real city for people to walk around. But, like, everyone's got to get somewhere. I was in Vermont. I go there every summer. And I got annoyed in reverse because everyone was falling over themselves to get (laughs) the other person to go. It says, no, you go ahead. No, you go. No, you. No, you. No, you. And it's like gridlock in the street. And when I picture Oregon, that's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing a lot of nice people. But apparently yeah. there's you who's pissed at these women in baby carriages. <laughs> Geeky. Why is this
0: women hating new moms? I don't hate new moms. I just think they need to protect their babies better. I'm like, seriously? Get <laughs> their Babies
1: out the street.
0: Get your baby out of the street. I don't care about you. You walk in the street, but your baby should not be in the street like that. Fair enough. Go to a proper crosswalk with a stop sign or a stop late and protect your baby. <laughs> one more block. Walk one more block to protect your baby. I don't understand. It's like I got a baby carriage, don't hit me.
1: <laughs> ba- the baby's out we gotta protect the babies. Right. I think we can all get behind protecting the babies. Can we agree on that?
0: That's what I can agree on for show. Sure. <laughs> okay does anyone have an idea for us to rant on if you have one send them to us on twitter at stem cell podcast or email stem at gmail.com all right dalen this concludes another episode episode 68 of the stem cell podcast full of great information another great interview i think it was another good show good not great Great. It was great.
1: Yeah. All right. Just making sure. <laughs> just making sure. All right, Kiki, yeah, it was a great one. It was a great one. Yeah. I'm with that. I love Donna. Uh, I'm going to go over there right now and see if she wants to be my friend.
0: Say, hey, want to get a cup of coffee?
1: Yeah, hey, that's hey, my little friend. too, Ford. Can
0: I have some yeah. cells?
1: I'll just say, can I have some of your cells?
0: Then, there you go.
1: Then she'll never be my friend. I only came for a hand up.
0: That's right. All right, everyone, be sure to tune in for our next great episode where we will interview somebody fabulous and deliver you all the latest papers. Dalen, I'm looking forward to next time.
1: Me too. Can't wait.